Good day, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Hazmat Guys. I'm Bobby Salveson, so let's get into it. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 14, and we are the premier podcast dealing with hazmat response for fire respondents, and we give you the knowledge and insight to do our job safely and effectively. I'm Bobby Salas, and I'm glad to be here with my co-host, Mike, the man Monaco. <laughs> so much better than other things people call me. <laughs> How are you doing today, Bob? Good. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Today, I'm actually uh, not in my home. I'm on the road. You're on. You're on the road. This is, is it. Does it feel weird to be out of your studio? It is very weird. <laughs> I don't think I'm. Uh, I'm very out of my element. I'm not sitting down. I'm trying the standing up thing, and it's not. It doesn't do me well. No, it doesn't suit you well. Uh, no, I don't know why. Well. I can't sit down. I really can't. I have to be. Uh, for those of you in Radio Land, uh, where, where I usually stand up. I find I get better energy that way. And Bob's usually sitting down, and uh, I, I don't know why. I just can't do it without feeling like I'm choking. <laughs> What's going on with you? A lot. A lot. We've got uh, the conference in Baltimore that started preparing for, yes. uh, which we're, we're both speaking at. So uh, if you've heard this, what what is today's date? Today is uh, 1-18. Is January 18th. January 18th, 2016. So if you're hearing this way after that date, uh, me and Bob don't even ignore this next part. But if you're just tuning in for the first time and it's before May of 2016, uh, we and Bob are going to be speaking at a conference in Baltimore, so yes. uh, we're excited about that, getting all that stuff ready, and uh, that's that's really been it, just working on the show, and uh, I've been on, I'm on vacation right now, so I haven't been in the firehouse, so I've got no interesting uh, stories to tell, but uh, I, I hear Bob is quite the opposite. Yeah, I've been very busy lately. <laughs> nothing good, nothing, uh, nothing exciting, nothing to uh, write home about. All right. But- um, all I do want to say is keep that feedback back coming. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of great information. We have some, uh, I think we have a couple of interviews lined up, um, things in the future, but this episode was, uh, thrown to us from a couple of our listeners. We actually had, uh, a couple, probably about two dozen. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say requests. a few more than a couple, <laughs> <laughs> uh, a couple dozen requests for metering. And that's what these next few i'm gonna say four to five weeks are gonna be is about metering and me and mike were kind of avoiding this because it's a it's a huge topic and it's very hard to do without getting into uh meters yeah that sounds weird but without getting into specifics on meters um and without having the meter in front of you like this is this is one of those things that's it's a really hard topic to talk about when you don't have anything there but when we sat down and we started going through the information we realized that there's a lot of similarities between meters uh, and a lot of similarities between manufacturers and things like that. And it doesn't matter whether you have a Draeger or an All-Star or an MSA or this or that. The concepts and the purpose for the metering is really what we need to to go over and teach. You know, I can get a Draeger, I can get MSA, I can read the manual. And if I understand the concepts, the very foundation essentially right. of the metering, I'm going to be able to use this meter in, in without even looking at the manual. Would you say that that's... Absolutely. Yeah. I, we, Me and Mike, uh, we get like a new meter, without exaggeration, about one a month, uh, I'm going to say. I would even venture to say once every two weeks, there's something okay. new plopping in. 
we get a new meter, and you can go back and almost inevitably. All of these meters are based upon some basic technology or maybe an advanced technology, and all they do is they switch up the, the color screen or they put a better sensor on it, but it's the same stuff. So we've broken down this enormous uh, topic of metering into four, what we think is going to be four episodes. So episode, uh, this one is going to be episode 14. It's going to be the overview of metering and basic technology. Uh, next week is going to be advanced technology. And then the next one is going to be measuring and interpreting the data that comes back. And then the final one will be from numbers to action, which is basically we're going to be uh, summing up when you get these things, what are we going to do about it? What, what are our action thresholds? Right, Mike? Absolutely. And and don't hold us to these episodes, guys. If if we end yeah. up going off on a tangent and episode one becomes two different episodes or episode four becomes two different episodes, there's going to be a lot of information here. One of the great things about these podcasts is hopefully this stuff will be out there forever. On the website are all of our show notes, all right? The show notes go through everything. It's pretty much verbatim to what we say. So use those show notes as references because you can go into the website and you can search specific terms and bring up the blogs, which are the show notes, and you can search that. You can figure out where stuff was. So even though this is going to be a four, possibly five uh, podcast episode, uh, you can still use this as a reference material. You can still go back to it. If there's something specific you're looking to hear about, uh, go to the show notes, look it up, find where it is. You can find the episode. You can even find within five to 10 minutes of the time, you can find out where we're talking about it. And yeah. worst comes to worst, email us and we'll clear up anything that we screwed up over the past five episodes. <laughs> All right, so metering is vitally important to what we do here, right? Metering is is an extension of our senses, okay? And it can determine both the type of atmosphere that we're entering and what kind of harms we expect it to impose on us. Right, and we're used to this in our everyday life, okay? We're used to having our smells. We're used to having our eyes. We're used to our body gathering information to, to let us know what's going on in the world around us. But, you know, in this world of hazmat, we're, we're not really able to, to gauge the information that we need to do the isolation distances and the PPE. Right, and all monitoring is, the, and this, is, this isn't something that's, uh, you know, brand new, but it's, it's a dynamic operation. It's constantly evolving. We're trying to evaluate, reevaluate, reevaluate again, change up metering techni technologies and even uh, metering techniques to get a better overview of this whole thing. So, Mike, why do we monitor a scene? All right. There's a ton of different things that we're doing when we're monitoring. Uh, we got to keep them in mind because each one of them is going to help with our actions and help us with the next step. So if you can just remember these things, first and foremost, we're going to establish the zones. We want to exposure potentials for us and the public. We're going to locate and confine substances or issues. And establish lines of IDLH, which is the immediately dangerous to life and health. Super importantly, we're finding out if something's flammable. We're seeing what the oxygen levels are, whether they're enriched or deficient, and we're looking for toxic substances. And we want to confirm that our actions are being beneficial to the operation. Right. So why is this so important? Uh, why do we want to know what we're reading? Well, because each monitor reads a different type of, um, op I don't know, reads a different 
thing. Thing. <laughs> thing. I, you know, something that we're interested to. If this wasn't true, we could all use one meter. How great would that be? I mean, if we can just grab the meter and we just walk in there and the thing does all that we need to do. So this but, gives us, right? I mean, yeah, like it would be awesome. Like the Highlander of meters, there can be only one. <laughs> there can only be one. <laughs> we, you know, we can get all the information we need in a nice, tidy little package. But we can't. Uh, so unfortunately, we got to sit here and, and, and drone on for five episodes about meters. Uh, when we sat down and we, we tried to kind of figure out how we were going to approach this, uh, we took it from a point of view of building from the ground up. So some of the, the, the very first things that we want you to understand is the terminology. We want to all be on the same page. Uh, different places may call things differently. We're going to tell you the terminology that we use so that when we say something, you can go, oh, yeah, they, they talked about that. I understand uh, where this is. All right. Um, it's extremely important for everybody to be on this same page. Uh, one of the biggest things is to communicate from you to somebody else, whether it's interdepartmental, uh, from one agency to another, even out of state, if you're going to be talking from a local to a Fed, if you're going to different tiers, uh, is how things are read. And a perfect example of that is going to be your radiation. Um, not knowing the difference between milli and micro will mean a huge difference between federal response and picking the package up and putting it back on the vehicle that it dropped out of. Um, 10% of the LEL is a huge difference, or 10% of the atmosphere is a huge difference to 10 parts per million. So it's important to understand this terminology. Right, and we use the meters to bridge a gap between our senses you know, uh, and I have that sixth sense, that spidey sense, uh, <laughs> what is truly happening in an area. All right. So um, we've I, I, I'm sure everybody's seen that video of that. I believe it was a Chicago chief who went up to that. It's got to be in the early 80s where the guy went up to the leaking um, rail car and he he stuck his fingers in it and he yes, licked it. He Remember that? It. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that ruined his career from what I understand. I Did it really? Yeah. They they uh, they basically left him off the job. But um you know, we don't use our How, senses. You know, I get laughed at all the time. How much do you have to be laughed at to be laughed off the job? That's it's impre- It would be impressive. <laughs> um, but we, we try to use these meters to bridge what's actually happening in our area and our senses. In some cases, our senses will not alert us to the danger until well after the chemical has been a problematic effect on us or our environments. Now, Bob, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you have uh, one of your initial blog posts was a whole thing on metering priority? Absolutely. It's funny you should say that. <laughs> <laughs> right? So this was this is actually, I think, the very first blog post that you did under the Hazmat Guys, if you go to thehazmatguys.com. And uh, this is always a, an interesting thing to talk about because uh, nobody really agrees uh, within groups on actual metering priorities. And, and it makes it pretty fun to be able to discuss this in a classroom. For those instructors that are out there, this is a really easy way to start to pin people against each other and get the, the conversation going in the classroom. Um, so we're not going to try to um, argue with anyone if they think you know radiation should be over flammability or flammability should be on the lease. Whatever it is, it, it's fine. Um, but uh, we're going to break this down to the bare bones. Um, there is some method to our madness. So uh, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and begin with radiation which uh, I think me and Bob both agree is pretty much one of the first things that you want to, to be metering for, and mainly because radiation can reach out and touch you from such a long distance away. And it's so easy to 
to, to know whether or not there's something in the air. If the meter goes off, it goes off. There's something. If not, there's there's nothing. Right. And the, and the next thing is going to be flammability. In mine and Mike's um, experience, flammability is one of the, the second thing you want to know about because this is going to directly impact our PPE selection. Um, in some cases, flammability is very close to toxics, uh, and therefore you're going to have to make that determination. This comes with kind of uh, a huddle. Uh, whether we're going to go with those plastic suits, which are going to address the toxic hazard, or we're going to go with our fire gear, which is going to address the flammability. And unfortunately, there's really no way to do both. So if toxic is the most, and again, again, you're putting the heart in front of the course, but you know, if we can't address both, then we're going to have to um, ventilate and make it one or the other. And it's a dice shoot. You know whether you're going to be picking which one or which, uh, which which PPE. So uh, that would be my selection for the second one, Mike. What's your third? My third would be oxygen. Uh, without a doubt, oxygen. Uh, a couple different reasons. <clears throat> one, again, it goes back to to PPE selection. You know, your your SCBA is something you're going to want to have on your back. Uh, so you're going to know whether or not there's enough oxygen for you to breathe in that environment because you could have absolutely no chemicals whatsoever but a lack of oxygen is gonna you know be a pretty bad day for you um but oxygen oxygens are really one of these kind of crazy chemicals uh and believe it or not we, we don't really consider oxygen to be a really crazy chemical but it's actually one of the 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 biggest oxidizers out there one of the most reactive molecules out there uh and it has the ability to really kind of screw around with your meter readings so if you're trusting your meter readings and you don't know what the oxygen level is in that environment, you could be reading into something that is completely false. All right. The presence of, of oxygen in the room uh, can affect flammability, which is our number two. It can uh, affect reactivity because oxygen reacts with pretty much everything. All right. And it can change the products of reaction. So if you have a reaction taking place in an oxygen enriched environment or an oxygen deficient environment, um, the the things that are that are pushed off can actually change depending on those ratios. Right. And and the next one, uh, number four on the list would be toxicity. Uh, what is toxicity again? This is something that's going to have an effect on you, the person, the environment, uh, a living thing. Okay, it's uh, it's something that we want to use. Maybe uh, meters such as colometric tubes, single gas monitors like carbon monoxide, and the list goes on and on for this. All right, our uh, our number ten is it number ten? No, it's not number ten. It's number, number five. five. <laughs> I'm doubling <laughs> up how far ahead we are. Uh, number five on our list is going to be corrosives. All right. Most people say uh, that this is a, a second form of metering, but I got to be honest with you, we, we don't really agree with that stance. We definitely consider it a, a primary meter. And for the ease by which you can monitor corrosivity of the atmosphere, uh, it should be something that's that's just it's on you anytime you go in uh, and you should be kind of glancing at it every time you, you move forward. All right, and uh, fluoride paper. Should we be including that as one of the possibilities with the uh, the corrosives, Bob? I would say yes. Yeah, I would. I would. I would say. I, it's a, it's an easy uh, identification, and and you know what? I, you know what? We would we were throwing this thing around, and you see that it's number five on this list, um, and I'm going to say that there's going to be a quite a bit of dissension with people because the meter purists say that corrosivity has to be bumped up to almost right behind uh, radiation. Because corrosivity will ruin your meter. 
what's your intake on that, Mike? Because yeah, I know you're I mean, strongly feeling about that. Yeah, I, 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 I agree, and I and I disagree. Uh, I definitely think. All right, if we're going to sit here and we're going to argue stuff, uh, I would think that maybe corrosivity would be above oxygen. Uh, not above oxygen, above toxicity or around the same as toxicity. But, you know, oxygen and flammability, they, they can they can screw with your, your meters as well, and they can do a lot more damage to you more quickly than a corrosive environment is. And to be really honest with you, I, I don't give a damn about the meter. Like, I, I really don't. Like, if I walk into a corrosive environment, if I'm walking into a flammable and a corrosive environment and I need to operate in those environments, I, I'm not going to care. I'm going to call in more companies to bring me more meters because I'm going to burn through them so quickly that I'm going to need more meters to constantly grab and bring back into the environment. Right. And, and, and the last thing is reactivity. And, and what this basically means is whether a reaction is happening that's going to be endothermic, which is relatively rare, or exothermic. Uh, and so what we're going to use to test for reactivity is like a thermal, um, uh, you know, like an IR thermal gun or uh, maybe a thermal imaging camera will show you that there's a temperature difference and it'll tell you if something is reacting. So. Right. Now, we want to, uh, we want to take some time. We said this first one was going to be taking time to get on the same page. So in the process of doing that, we were thinking, hey, let's let's make sure that we're all on the same page with other terminology as well. All right. So one of the first things that we want to talk about, uh, give us some background on response times. Okay. So response time is the time that the meter needs to get a sample from the air or wherever you're going to be pulling it from and put a number on the screen or move the needle or whatever it might be for you. Um, and there's basically two types of collection methods that the meters employ. So, Mike, what are the two different ways that the meter takes a sample? Okay, so the, the first one is the, the easiest, all right? And this is through what's called pass-by or diffusion. And basically what's happening is the sensor is out there in the open, uh, and whatever it's coming in contact with in the atmosphere all by itself is what it's going to read. So if the meter is attached to your chest, all you're going to be reading is whatever that air sample is right at chest level all right um the second is going to be the pump uh and the pump is going to draw in a, a sample and push it over the sensor uh generally this is going to be done when we need to reach up high or go low into a hole and we want to pull that air up and through uh, and the pump is really the one that we talk about when we talk about response times because it takes time for that air to go through the tube and then go over the, the sample. And we had mentioned in our, um, our chemical suicides episode that if you want a more immediate, if you have a, a pump that has a tube in it and you want a more immediate response time, take that tube off. All right. You take that tube off. You shorten the amount of time it takes to get to that air. That way you're not uh, 10, 15 seconds into an environment before you get a sample. Um, so knowing the type of meter, whether it's a pass by or a pump through is going to, it's going to alter your operations, right? right? Yeah. So, uh, we need to, we need to know which one it is. All right. So how about uh, sensitivity, Bob? All right. Sensitivity is going to be your meters way of being able to pick up whatever's in this, in the air. The more sensitive it is, and this makes sense, uh, the more sensitive it is, the faster it's going to pick it up. Um, 
you can have a low sensitivity and usually meters will have almost like a bell curve to it where it will have a sweet spot where it's most sensitive typically at the bottom of the range or the top of the range it loses sensitivity up to the point of like saturation but uh, for the most part uh, it's going to be relatively it's going to have a sweet spot at the lower end because that's where we want to start really reading it uh, at a certain point it's going to drop off in sensitivity but you know it what what is well, I'm going to cut that part out. Mike, what is selectivity? All right, selectivity. Selectivity is how accurate that meter can monitor either a single grass or a group of chemicals. So this is basically saying how good is it at narrowing down to that specific chemical or that specific group of chemicals uh, that it's meant for. We don't want a lot of interference with other compounds. Uh, we don't want to be knowing that our meter saying that there's 50 parts per million in the atmosphere and we don't know it but 10 of those parts is co another 15 is acetylene and another 10 is sulfur dioxide and it just lumps it all together so we want to try to have something that is is very very selective um and so we go on from selectivity we go on to operating range so bob what is the operating range okay so the operating range is the um, accuracy for a given concentration. So in some cases, the range is smaller, then, then the accuracy gets better. So let's think about this in our fire trucks, okay? We're driving a fire truck at 55 miles an hour. If I put a 1,000 mile per hour speedometer in it, it's showing that it's 55 miles an hour, but it's not very accurate. If I change that speedometer to 100 miles an hour, accuracy improves a lot. I think that's a pretty good way of, of describing that whole comp concept, right? Yeah, without a doubt, because you could imagine a gauge that's a, that would go up to 1,000, and from what? I mean, 0 to 100, that needle would barely even move. Barely move. So you would have right. no idea if you're doing 10 miles an hour or 100 miles an hour. Exactly, and that, that would show you the accuracy range, and some, some meters have different ones. So what about amplification? Okay, amplification. So when a meter is going to amplify something, that means that it's taking – the very small amount of product that's in the air and it's electronically amplifying it to give you a reading. Uh, this is great because it allows you to go down to very, very, very tiny amounts, but we have to be really, really careful because in this amplification process, all right, light, radio waves, uh, there's a whole bunch of different things that can interfere, sound, generators, electrical impulses, all of these things can go to interfere with the amplification process. So it's just something that we have to be aware of. Uh, another thing we have to be aware of is accuracy. Bob, anything on accuracy? Yeah, this is the relationship between the true readings and the meters reading. So when you have to use, like, let's say a multiplication factor, which we also call uh, a correction factor, we use these to uh, arrive at the correct value. Um, so... It's the difference between what is really happening and what the meter is reading. We're going to get into it a little while, a little bit more uh, in depth in a little while. But Mike, let's go into reliability. Okay, reliability. This is a really easy one. All right, this is how consistently that meter is going to go ahead and give you that reading. All right, so if I walk into five different rooms and every room is 50 parts per million and my meter says 50 parts per million every single time, I know that that meter is reliable. If I'm getting a huge amount of drift, meaning one room it says 50, the next time I walk into that room it says 10, the next time I walk into the next room it says 45, I don't have a reliable meter. And that, that's really important because you're trusting your life into this meter and you're making decisions on this meter, you need to make sure that it's reliable. 
All right. So we've got reliability. We've got accuracy. Um, the way that we kind of judge accuracy and reliability is we're constantly doing what's called a calibration. So, Bob, what is calibration and how does it play a role in this whole thing? Okay, so we're not getting into the manufacturer's recommendations because in general terms, a calibration has to be done periodically. Uh, that's basically what everyone does. Now, everybody wants to want to do it in two hours and once a tour or once every three months. In fact, we probably churn on and test our meters way too much. Way too much. Uh, right? Way I mean, too much. Where me and Mike work, we do it twice a day. And uh, guys could probably be like, they're going to bang their head against the screen on that one. But, um, yeah, that's probably way too much. So what we do is we use a CalGas uh, which is a cylinder with known quantities of um, certain gases. So you have gas A, B, C, D, E in there, whatever the hell they are. All right. Um, and this is going to give the meter something to reference itself against. These gases cylinders do expire, so you have to check on that. Those uh, gases will change in concentrations after a certain date. But we will, um, let's say we put a, uh, 200 parts per million of gas X across the sensor and the meter looks at it and says no it's it's 195 well then the computer will adjust that sensor to say no this is 200 and over time the sensors go bad and this has to be done more and more and more but that's how we adjust the meter to get a true reading um yeah, so, <laughs> you know, and it's, not to be confused with, with what Mike's going to talk about, bump testing. Right, so the bump test is going to be a little bit different. I've also heard this referred to as a confidence test, all right? And basically what it's allowing you to do is in the field before you go ahead and use this meter, all right, you have a sample of a known gas and express a response from the meter. So what does that mean? It means you introduce something you already know exists to the meter and the meter goes off gives you a certain parts per million or it just alerts you that's something there and it lets you know that yes this meter is working yes it's accurate yes it's reliable yes it's within its operating levels and it's this kind of extra little reassurance before you you go ahead in all right um this is different than a fresh air setup right because a fresh air setup is almost like a like a calibration but you're calibrating to zero based upon what's in the open atmosphere before you walk into a room all right so uh, we've got calibration we've got uh the fresh air setup and we have a bump test so if you're a little confused on that head back to the website read the show notes uh there are differences between the two and all three are very important all right um we hear this next term a lot and uh it's something that really it confuses a lot of people and and it shouldn't have to it's a pretty basic concept but because there's math involved people kind of get a little uh, little on edge and that term is the relative response so bob what is it and why is it so important all right i'm going to try to keep the math as simple as possible here but uh what happens is is that our meters are pretty dumb okay they do uh, a specific task and our task that we're asking to do is let's say for our example here uh flammability now, what we have to do is we have to pick out a specific gas and meter it. Okay, so we're going to we're gonna calibrate, and let's use, for example, pentane. Pentane's a very common one. Uh, it's right, it's in, the, it's in the wheelhouse. It's in the, in the sweet spot of all the, the LELs. It's basically right in the middle. So we calibrate our meter, our fictional meter against pentane, okay, for this example. And um, what we do is we zero it out to that. 
Now when we go into another atmosphere, and let's call that atmosphere uh, atmosphere Z, well, the meter is dumb. It thinks it's reading pentane. So what happens is there's no way for the meter to know what it's actually reading. It's just going to read it as if it was pentane. So we use something called a correction chart. Uh, and to be honest with you, you really don't need to memorize or even have it close um, when you go in there. Most of the time, these meters have a low and a high alarm, and the, even the low alarm is going to be... Actually, the, even the higher alarm is going to trigger way before you're going to have a problem with the worst possible scenario, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, at least for the ones that we have, because everyone's a little bit different, I yeah. think... Uh, if we had the worst case scenario, we'd have to multiply by 2.2. So right. if we got 20% of the LEL and we multiplied that by 2.2, we would be in the what? The 44%, 40, yeah. right? So half. Do quick math, good? Quick, I think so. <laughs> Let's say, we'll say 44%. Uh, you know, we would still be less than 50% of the uh, of the LEL. So we got plenty of, of fudge room uh, in, right. in case. Um so we have a correction factor chart, which is why we don't really have to memorize any of this stuff. And we consider 100% of that correction factor to be 1. Right. So the reading on the meter is going to be multiplied by the correction factor. And honestly, every single uh, meter, every single sensor has a correction factor. You can get these things from manufacturers, and there are quite literally books of these things and guys around <laughs> where me and Mike uh, work uh, they love to look at these books as if they mean something but in all reality it's going to be something we're going to say okay it's it's gas X let's look up gas X okay the conversion factor is 2 alright great but the, the meter is still going to be going off way before we have that problem so uh, you know that's the difference in, in correction between the actual gas reading and what gives us a true reading. So, Mike, what are cross sensitivities and interferences? All right. It's a very, very, very important thing to understand cross sensitivities and interference. All right. Uh, it's chemical reactions, for the most part, that drive these meters. Uh, sometimes it's not chemical reactions. Sometimes it's the actual property of the molecule that we're looking at. All right. But when the meter comes in contact with a chemical that has a similar property, whether it's a reaction to electrochemical sensor, it could be the size of the molecule, like in an ion mobile. All right. It could be the ability for it to absorb energy, like uh, FTIR and Raman. When they come in contact with these things and they act like the chemical that we're looking for, we will get a cross sensitivity. All right. These chemicals are usually a known thing. All right. So this isn't some like, holy cow, th th I can't believe this is happening. This is a known thing from the manufacturer. Manufacturers will do their tests. It is important to keep the paperwork that comes with these meters because this is where you're going to find all the information. The manufacturer is going to let you know, hey, here's a CO and here is all the things that can make that CO meter go off. All right, so that's cross sensitivity. What, Bob, is interference? All right, so interference is something that's going to give you an out of true reading, something like temperature, something like humidity. Uh, you know, different technologies are affected by different things. Uh, you know, the, the, the gels and the sensors will become, um, you know, harder and cold. Uh, you know, cold weather. Humidity is going to throw off a lot of the advanced technology. Uh, or gases like carbon dioxide can ruin an oxygen sensor. Silicone sprays may ruin or skew over an LEL reading. 
water vapor humidity may interfere with the PID readings. Um, and so there may be even a humidity correction factor in associated with the sensor. So you said uh, carbon monoxide may ruin the oxygen sensor. You're not talking about the actual carbon dioxide reacting with the sensor, right? You're, you're actually talking about the carbon dioxide has actually destroyed the sensor itself. Right, right. It almost as like an acid gas. Right, because if it was the if it was picking up the carbon dioxide, that would be the um, the cross sensitivity. Cross because, sensitivity, correct. But because it's ruined the sensor, that's the interference. Yeah. All right. Cool. So we have all this, and then we have uh, kind of like what we're going to do with the meter and when. We call this an action level. All right. Everybody has different action levels. All right. Um, we have different action levels than some of the people on our own job. Uh, and you're going to have different action levels depending on what your job and your SOPs dictate, all right? What is nice is that most of the meters out there, they allow you to put in alarm levels. And so you can actually put in high and low alarm levels for your different action levels. Guys, this is a fantastic idea. If you haven't done it already, go do it because it allows you not to have to be thinking about numbers while you're operating. If the meter goes off, then you know you are at an action level. Um, this can be uh, this can be something that you. What is an action level? It's it's something that you have to do an action on. I mean, it's it's really as straightforward as that. Yeah, it's a trigger. It's it's an action level. Do an action. And that action can be a number of different things. All right? Your action could tell you it's time to evacuate. Your action can tell you it's time to put your SCBA on. Your action level can tell you to call for more resources. Uh, it can tell you to, to get another meter, check this, check that. It's just an action. Doesn't mean you have to go and save the world. It means you have to perform an action. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It's, it's fine. Okay. So, Bob, give me an idea of what we're talking about when we say monitoring techniques. Okay. So, and this is really a condensed, boiled down version. But when we're metering, one of the most prominent things that we have to do uh, or consider is whether the gas is going to rise or fall. Uh, and, and how do we do this? By looking at the chemical physical properties of the thing, and that's going to be in the NIOSH book uh, where it's going to give you a uh, vapor density or a specific gravity that's going to tell you what's going to go on with this whole thing. So remember that we want to keep uh, our metering, though it says, oh, um, carbon monoxide is slightly lighter and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be lighter. That doesn't mean I'm walking through the whole house with my, my meter up in, the, uh, up in the top. All right, remember that some gases will be affected by temperature and wind currents and may invalidate this. Like, for example, uh, a baseboard, a hot, uh, you know, hot water baseboard, well, all it does is just keep putting air, warm air, up the wall. So if that chemical or vapor gets stuck in that stream, you're going to have the vapor everywhere. So all monitored areas should be monitored for true readings to be made. So, Mike, let's talk about some sensors here. Let's get into the nitty-gritty. Nitty-gritty. All right, here we go. Nitty-gritty. All right, uh, we got a lot of different types of sensors out there. It's important to understand how they work. Uh, one of them is the oxygen detector. All right, it's oxygen detection. Like I said, it, it's on every five gas, on every four gas for a reason. Uh, by by standards, we have to, to write to monitor for it. There's a reason for that, okay? Uh, we consider low oxygen to be 19.5%. Just keep in mind, and we're not going to go through the math on here, but a 1% decrease, 
All right, so if your meter goes from 20.9 to 19.9, that means 50,000 parts per million of something is now in the air. All right, also low oxygen is going to skew our readings on our CIGs, uh, on our CGIs. All right, and this is because really you need oxygen to kind of take that meter reading when it comes to flammability. Right, and and high oxygen is just as bad. High oxygen is typically done at twenty three and a half percent. So twenty three point five percent is where we start getting into this high oxygen. And what this means to us is that it's going to increase flammability. Uh, it's going to use um, an electrolytic solution to measure it. So there's a reaction between the oxygen and the solution, and the electrodes housed inside be you know start to uh, elicit a reading basically by a. Uh, uh, a resistance change right temperatures can also affect our reading um, and we know we got a, a huge variation in temperature where we are right now it's 20 degrees in the summertime it could be 108 degrees all right uh, the way that these sensors read a lot of times is they have a chemical reaction and that chemical reaction produces some kind of an electrical impulse all right when you have changes in temperature you have changes in resistance through the circuit of that machine and you also have chemical reactions uh, taking place that change based upon temperature you increase the temperature increase the rate of reaction so things can get thrown off a little by that also one more thing is the altitude may have an effect on the reading so you got to calibrate your meter to the altitude that you're going to be monitoring at um, a difference of uh, a couple of thousand feet could have totally different effects on all of your readings. So now we're going to move on to the combustible gas, the, the LEL meter, the explosives meter, the combustibles meter, whatever you want to call the meter, but that kind of thing. What are we doing? All right. Well, uh, this, like you said, it's short for uh, combustible gas indicator. Yep. It could be used as either a pass-by or a pump-through version. All right. This technology is relatively simple. It uses a chamber. All right, with a filament that is coated with something like a platinum or palladium, some kind of a, um, a, a catalyst. Yes, and we're going to use the Wheatstone Bridge. You may have heard of this thing. It's this, like, unicorn. <laughs> it is <laughs> this ever unicorn. Seen this thing. <laughs> it is this magical device that lives inside of our meter. It's, a, it's an electronic <laughs> circuit that has both a sample circuit and a known circuit that's protected, and it measures the difference between the two to get a reading. Temperature will affect this meter, all right? Hot days, hot temperatures are going to give you higher readings. Oh. All right, and we also need to have a normal oxygen to read this properly. Okay, so there's electrochemical cells in here. These usually are used on a single gas meter, and it has a chemical that's specific to uh, give a reading with a known gas. So, Mike... Another type of sensor is the metal oxide. Tell us something about that. All right. So this is going to be used, at least we use this the most to measure uh, natural gas and, and hydrogen sulfide, although hydrogen sulfide can be used in the, the electrochemical sensor as well. Uh, it's also very frequently used in home meters for CO. All right. This is the technology that, that is in your standard CO meter that you plug into the wall. All right. It measures and works by re, uh, a redox reaction a reduction or an oxidation of that metal um, gives you a resistance changes the electrical current and it's going to give you a reading this is a really really reliable meter all right but it is not very good in the high range parts per million 
All right, metal oxide works very, very well in, in low amounts, but it can get very flooded in the high range. Many of these metal oxide meters will give you like a pulse tone. So, for example, what we use it most for in our natural gas, it literally gives you a, a tone and a pulse, and the higher the concentration, the higher that, that tone or pulse goes. Make sense? Yep. Okay, so we're moving on from metal oxides. We're going to start to dive a little into pH and pH strips. So, Bob, what do you got when it comes to pH? Okay, we use, uh, me and Mike use the paper strips. I think most of us out there use the paper strips. There are electronic ones that will do this and give you a digital readout. Uh, however, there's a lot of drawbacks to them. A lot. Um, they require a buffer solution, uh, which is basically a calibration. And you have to calibrate it every time you use them. At least every one I've seen. Yeah, some of them require being constantly in that buffer solution. Yeah. So um, the most common way that you do it is with a pH strip. It's going to give you a color change um, based upon the amount of the H's or the OH's, meaning the acids or the bases. So what about colorimetric methods? All right. So the, the colorimetrics, the two that we, the two things that we use for colorimetrics, which by the way means color metering, meaning that we are literally taking a look at what's in the atmosphere by a change in color of something. All right. We have two different things that me and Bob use anyway is uh, the CDS, which is going to be those glass tubes that you have a pump, you that to manually pump it or some of the newer ones, you just, you know, it automatically knows how much to pump in. All right. Or the CMS, which is the electronic equivalent. Uh, this uses a chip and it does a digital readout display. It works by passing a gas through a tube. And these tubes are filters, desiccants, uh, things that take the uh, humidity out, uh, and chemicals that will react when the anticipated gas is drawn through it. All right. The amount of the pump will aid in determining the concentration. And the humidity may have effect on these readings. And temperatures may affect the reading as well. Cold's going to slow down all chemical reactions. All right. They may also take a very long time to read. Some of them, 100 minutes. Some of them take dozens of pumps. All right. So you need to, uh, you need to be ready to be there for the long haul. Right. So just read the instructions prior to use, especially when you're using these things. Um, each one, each type of tube may have its own individual uh, instruction. So please, before you go and spend 100 minutes on one tube and figure out that it was like, oh, I totally did it wrong, read it. Right. So and before you go to volunteer to pump, see how many pumps it takes because some yeah. of these take a lot of pumps. Yeah. Uh, another method of uh, of of um, metering is pulled from the military, and it's called the M8, M9, and the M256 kit. Tell us about it, Mike. All right, so the M8 paper is just like pH paper. All right, <clears throat> it comes in strips. You dip it in the substance, and it's going to change color depending on whether or not your whatever compound it's set to. All right, generally your chemical warfare agents for the M8, um, you know, is there. It's going to have a color change. Right, and the M9 is a tape. Uh, it's it's quite literally like a duct tape, and it detects droplets of an agent. So anything that's airborne uh, and comes in contact with this tape face will become splotchy, indicating a presence. Right, and now you have your incredibly complex M256 <laughs> kit. All right, this thing, it uses ampules of reagents, colometric tubes. It's a whole process. It's, it's a wet chemistry set. Yeah, it's it's a huge pain in the ass. 
All right, but it detects nerve agents, blister agents, and blood agents. It's really time-consuming. Uh, generally, it takes two people to do it. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it requires a, a, a lot. You know who likes to use that? Kenny Lynch. He's a jerk. <laughs> yes. Kenny Lynch would love to use this kit. <laughs> All right, go ahead. <laughs> All right. Uh, so what do we have for radiation detectors? All right, the human body has no way to sense radiation exposure. And eventually it will show by your hair falling <laughs> out and late stages. But by then, it's too late. It's too late. It's done. So, so it's done. We, we use a, a, few, a few couple, a few couple, a buck 380. <laughs> uh, we use like a few types of meters. Um, what are they, Mike? They are. All right, so the first one and probably one of the more common ones is the Geiger-Muller. All right, this is a, a gas-filled tube. That senses the amount of ions. It's completely sealed from the air, and uh, it basically counts. What it does is it allows it it allows the radiation to go through this sealed chamber. And when it goes through this sealed chamber, um, as the ion, as the radiation passes from the inside of the the outside of the chamber to the inside, it allows the electrons to jump from one end to the other. And when it does that, that's a click. All right, so uh, it's a very reliable meter. Um, it's good to let you know if something is there. Uh, they don't have very wide ranges, so you need to make sure that if you have a low energy or not a lot of rads that you use in a specific meter, uh, a specific probe, and if you have a high energy that you're using a specific probe. Another one is an ion chamber, and this is, uh, again, this is a very common type. Uh, it's a tube that utilizes ambient air to detect ionized gases. Uh, these types are beneficial because their readings are directly related to the intensity of the radiation. So you're going to see what's really happening with that radiation. So when you have radiation of varying intensities, this is going to reflect the true reading, not the average. The next one up is the scintillator, the scintillation detector. It sounds like such a cool word, scintillator. I like saying it. I, me too. It rolls it's like a scintillator. All right. Now that I'm not being creepy, um, what the scintillator does is it uses a whole crystalline structure uh, that's going to interact with the radiation. All right. A lot of times you'll hear them as sodium ion, uh, cesium uh, iodide, zinc sulfide. All these different things create crystalline structures that the radiation is going to kind of play with. And when it does, every time it interacts, it blows off a, a flash of light. All right, and then the meter is able to take that flash of light and interpret it into a reading. Generally, they have a very thin Mylar film over the sensor to help protect from debris, temperature, humidity, things along those lines. All right, these are most useful in the smaller amounts of radiation realm. Yeah, this is like a decon thing, right, Mike? Yeah, this is going to be uh, for for us. Uh, we use it on like, and we go to counts per million, and we do a background, right. and you know, not counts per million, counts per second, counts per minute, things along those lines. And to wrap up this whole topic, we're going to go into dose meters and badges. And this is typically worn by a user uh, measuring the dose that that guy or girl has taken. So most in use in today are self-reading, meaning they don't have to be sent to a lab to be read. Uh, back a while back, you used to have a card, and then you would send it to the lab, and you'd see what you were exposed to. But now they're pretty much uh, right away. Uh, back uh, when, when I first came into special operations, we had the pen ones and you'd you'd take it up it looked like a pen a pen light like for ems and you'd look at the light uh just a regular light bulb with it and you would see 
um, a line that went across. But if you jostled it or hit it, it would reset itself or it would go higher or whatever. So um, now uh, they're electronic and they're very, very accurate. Um, you can get your dose by looking at the screen. And personal dosimeters are typically read only, uh, they only read gamma, right? I mean, I don't think there's anything else out there. Neutron? Beta. It may do Neutron's neutron, right? It'll do neutron, but uh, yeah, for dosimeter, I don't think there's really an alpha beta. So, um, that's it. We, I have something. I have a video. Uh, I'm gonna try to. Can we put the video on the blog with the blog post? Can we put like a little yeah. video clip? All right. So I can make it rain. I can make it rain, baby. You can make it blow up, and <laughs> so uh, when, <laughs> when I was uh, teaching in, uh, I think I gave this quick story. I'll repeat it. When I was teaching in Temple, Texas, all right, they didn't have any large amounts of radiation meters but they happen to have deep deep in storage their civil defense stuff and uh, we broke out the civil defense stuff and it was like the old school like you know this is the stuff that was going to be used when the the commies were going to take over <laughs> um i tell you what i threw the batteries in and everything worked and we got uh we got video of the dosimeter that you're talking about the pen and we were able to reset it I was able to get video actually looking into the pen and showing us turning the knobs. So, if you if this is if you're in a department where your civil defense stuff is going to be your go-to stuff for a radiation event and they're out there and there's nothing wrong with that, um, take a look at the at the blog post that has to do with this podcast and I'm going to put those videos on and it's going to show you a quick little tutorial on how to use the dosimeters and and how to use the uh, the three other meters that came along with that kit. Guys, I'm just going to put out one last point uh, while Mike was talking about it. He reminded me of something. But we are going to try to do video. Uh, we were trying to last week doing the blab.im, and we're going to try to get a very uh, a rigid schedule so that you guys can listen to us while we record these episodes live. And what we usually do is once we're done with the episode, uh, we open up the floor and people can come in and chat with us, talk to us, ask questions, and that. Uh, unfortunately, this week we couldn't do it, but we are going to be trying to do it. I'm learning how to build a uh, a intro and uh, putting explosions and all types of stuff in it. It's going to be very cool. It's going to be fun stuff. So that wraps up another episode of the Hazmat, guys. And thanks for taking a little bit of your day to listen to us and hopefully make your job a little bit easier. Uh, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter at the Hazmat, guys. Take a moment to go to iTunes and put in a request, um, uh, a review. Uh, leave us a voicemail at 843-628-1484. Um, and always we looking forward to your feedback or information or incidents that you were at uh, part of so send us a note at feedback at the hazmat guys dot com Mike tell them the, tell them the, uh, the, the, the line <laughs> hey guys don't just get onto the job get into the job <laughs> I love it <laughs> you know how All hard right. that is for a dyslexic person to remember <laughs> don't get on jobs <laughs> thank you don't get the job on Hey, no, that's not it either.